0: This episode of All the President's Minutes and all episodes of All the President's Minutes are brought to you by Bella Catering, bellacatering.com.au, one of Sydney's great catering companies pivoting to home delivery in this crazy time of COVID. Hopefully, fingers crossed, toes crossed, all the things crossed that they can start getting back out there again. They've been amazing. Glenn, Maria and team, they're awesome. Why the hell cook when you're trying to cater for your family at the moment or why the hell just cook in general if you just want to order a whole bunch of delicious food, have it delivered to your house for you in the Sydney area and just not have to worry about it. It's really stressful enough. (laughs) It's stressful enough. (laughs) Uh, Pitching the lines for them. Guys, a really big and condensed week. Thank you so much um, uh, for following along. We have three amazing episodes for you this week in all the President's Minutes and then we'll be back to our regular schedule of four. But now... It is feared that the Prime Minister has drowned. A great search is being made for Mr. Holt off Portsea, Victoria. However, no official announcement has been made as to the fate of the Prime Minister. Mr. Holt went for a swim shortly afternoon with a friend, Mr. Alan Stewart, a quarantine officer from the Melbourne suburb of Armadale. They swam out into heavy surf on the ocean side of the Mornington Peninsula. Mr. Stewart told police he saw the Prime Minister dive, but he failed to resurface. Mr. Stewart said he made a short search before sounding the alarm. For the details available so far, we cross to ABC News in Melbourne. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Oh my God, we are motoring through the series so far. uh, Around 30 episodes to go. And um, as some of you have probably heard on this show, um, I've said a few times that Twitter is not exactly a hellscape for me as some other people. I, I use it really to curate a list of people that i admire i don't hate follow anyone i just basically follow a whole bunch of people that i admire and sometimes those little venn diagrams of people that you know start interacting with new people and you go i don't know that person but they seem to know all the people i like and seem to be doing good work and why don't i know this person and that's exactly the experience that i had with today's guest i was started reading their stuff because I started seeing a friend, you know, dear friend of the show, Stu Coote and others um, interacting with him. And I thought, you know, if, if, if Stu endorses him, that's, I mean, that's a dangerous endorsement, just FYI, but if Stu endorses him, he must be good. And that means something to one heat minute productions, crew members out there in the world. Um, He's a Rotten Tomatoes uh, approved film critic for the jam report. And he contributes to the AE you review and you would find his writing and freelance work around the place. Very recently he's been made the awards editor awards editor rather of filmotomy Um it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Doug Jameson to All the President's Minutes. Mate, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here.
0: Look and um thank you. I, I usually sort of kick off every show with what's your relationship to this movie? Uh, and and, and we, we, don't, we, haven't, we don't know each other deeply, so I can't sort of uh, lean you in one direction or the other. But, uh, you know, is All the President's Men one of, your, one of your movies? Is Pacula one of your guys? Is this era one of your eras? What, what, t- tell me what your relationship is to this movie, other than, you know, uh, my attraction to talking to you was largely because of good taste and good writing, uh, <laughs> rather than
1: necessarily this movie. My first introduction to this story was through the 1990, uh, 1999 comedy Dick, which tells yes. the sort of revisionist right. history of Deep Throat in the form of uh, Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams as right. two vapid girls who stumble upon the Watergate conspiracy and essentially bring down Richard Nixon. So with that frame of reference in mind, the sort of 70s new Hollywood period was something I don't think I really came to until I started doing my I did a degree in uh, communications majoring in journalism and screen studies. And obviously we studied this period. Yes. So it was basically going through that whole 70s period devouring all of those films which really opened my eyes I guess to the transition of Hollywood from the studio system into the seventies where, you know, everything basically changed. Uh, And that was how, this was one of the films that we were pointed, uh, pointed to watch obviously because it was twofold, you know, it was a a brilliant film and it involved journalism. So it's the perfect film. It's the nexus of those two. Yeah. The nexus of
0: those two topics.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, and uh, I had
0: always had a really, who who are the bumbling Woodward and Bernstein and Dick? I can't, is one of them Will Ferrell?
1: Will Ferrell yeah. and I forget the other guy's name. I think he was on either SNL or the the Canadian version of SNL. So that they kind of just bounce off each other. Yeah. <laughs> so, like completely ridiculous. And I mean, that, that film has a whole bunch of sort of SNL people on a gas tire, Dave Foley. Yeah. Uh, Harry Shearer is in it as, as a as sort of, uh, I forget who he plays. One, one of the, one of Nixon's crooks. Um, Fred Stewart has a cameo um Terry oh, it's bruce
0: It's bruce mcculloch that's that's who right is. yeah oh yeah, my yeah. god yeah. he's wonderful absolutely and he wonderful. has this like
1: perfectly coiffed hair and like uh, it's just it's brilliant i think that is one of the most underrated comedies it's very very silly and i would hate to think anyone would watch that movie and think it's factual in any way <laughs> <laughs> you could take some history away from learning from that movie but um yeah, I, I, I guess I was interested in that movie especially because I, I've always had a real strong interest in American presidents for some reason. I don't honestly know where that's born from. My only connection is that I was born on November twenty-two, and that's the same date that JFK died. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that's where it began. That, you know what's that, so um,
0: weird, that, Doug, my daughter's birthday. Is,
1: my daughter's birthday is the twenty-second of November too.
0: No way! Get wait, out! Wait. Wow. Wait, wow, and, and you know we just started really quickly, and I, I hate I hate sort of running this back always, but Doug and I, you know, we're both Aussies, and we are around the same age, and so we're looking at we both sort of were asking each other the question prior to recording. And I think it's good for us to get it on the record, so to speak, is like, what is our fascination with American politics? What is it? And, yeah. and, you know, some of the things that might contribute to it is just like the pure pageantry of it. Um, you know, and to, for new listeners to the show, you know, if, if you're not as familiar with Australian politics, there are very strict, extremely strict windows where Australian politicians are allowed to essentially uh sort of media have a media campaign have debates have anything of the sort have have advertisements about you know upcoming policies or their parties approaches to different you know sort of hot button political topics healthcare, immigration education like you you name it it's just spin the wheel and basically it gets recycled um uh technology you know all those things um and So there's a very strict window and there's also a very small amount of money that can be spent. So even the Australian political race, like when is the election going to be called? We have a little bit of, you know, pageantry around there, then a small campaign trail, again, very concentrated dose three, four weeks, then a little bit of fallout transition in government, et cetera. Sometimes, um, you know, in, in, Basically British based and obviously Australian based and anyone in the Commonwealth, Canadian, etc. There can be things like minority governments where, you know, one party is elected but they have to sort of have a coalition with another party who maybe is along similar political lines. Bloody, bloody, blah. It doesn't take a long time. Whereas for yeah. folks who've been listening to this show, I was originally going to kick it off, you know, sort of a year out from the American election this year, thinking in 2019. I ended up kicking it off in very early January of this year. But the American pageantry and lead up to campaigning has really and and discussions of what's going to happen in my next term has been happening in the Trump presidency since January. And it's only Mm. the solidification and all the campaigning around the Democratic candidate has been happening all the way up until Biden was officially announced and then his running mate Kamala Harris. So if there's just one thing I would just say, it's the show. Like there's a yeah, lot more yeah. show. It's like they have a better marketing manager because you can't get away from the ads of this thing. It's like <laughs> constant trailers over and over again of something that's going to happen and it just doesn't happen in our country.
1: I think, yeah, our election campaigns are, you know, a couple of months and it seems that Australians complain about that length, <laughs> that, that Sometimes those are too long. Yeah. That All oh, the ads are on TV for too long and it's like, that shit goes on for or, you know, 18 months to two years in America. Like it's, it's almost like whole- they start campaigning for their re-election the day they're inaugurated.
0: It, it, the, and the also there are whole channels. Like we talk about movie yeah. sites that are focused on different things, whether it's like, you know, awards or independent cinema, or, you know, the, maybe a particular nation cinema, like the A-Year View, for example, you know, those sites that lean towards a particular genre, et cetera. But man... Whole news networks are made, yeah. made or broken. Uh, basically in in those discussions, yeah, it's a yeah. it's a crazy thing. And you know the other thing, it has been mentioned once on this show before, but I just want to call it out again. United States politics and political scandal and and really political fuckery has made wonderful uh, it's made some wonderful docudramas over the years that are beautifully aesthetically on point and really dramatically excuse me the drama is very true to life and very authentic like this movie all the way to the wildness of like oliver stone's nixon which is just manic nuts or you know or Mm. jfk which is just you know it in as much as it is very specific and true to some facts it is also speculative fiction in a larger sense but you know, we in Oz and a sitting Australian Prime Minister by the name of Harold Holt went for a swim and never came back. <laughs> and no one fucking cares in this country. Like, no one gives a shit. Maybe there was a lot of news at the time, but if an American president went for a fucking swim and then never came back, there would be whole movie genres, whole years, whole investigations, whole like different theories, conspiracy theories. There'd be the zombie version. There'd be porn parodies. There would be everything in under the sun. You'd find out that he was in an Aquaman sequel. Like there would be jokes like that doesn't happen. It's gone. Like in 2020, like maybe on this show, I've mentioned Harold Holt more than anyone else in Australia. Like it's, (laughs) it's, it's so stupid. And yeah, like, I just think also a big part of it is, um, you know, maybe it's this whole cagey outlook or maybe it's in the past, maybe we we're much more a forthright country as we sort of evolved into 2020, but political sort of uh, politics has been like a, a taboo to talk about publicly to wear on your sleeve, unless you are, you know, technically, I guess, an activist, um, uh, you know, and I think that when we were growing up, um when there's no talk of it in Australia in the larger sense from the adults that are around you, unless you had, you know, activist parents, or very politically engaged parents, et cetera. Um, now that's completely different. So I feel like, you know, you can have, you can have a, a very, you can have a lot of fun with uh, a current Australian politic, political machinations fun as in, you know, uh, making fun of those things. And also you can be extremely involved and have very vocal people to have arguments with about it. But I think back, when we were probably growing up that was not the case or not not as not not as forthright as it is now
1: no and i think i i was always certainly taught you know there's two things you don't discuss at a dinner party it's politics and religion yes and it was just it was completely off the table even even in your own uh, dinner table even you're in your <laughs> own family like i had no idea who my parents voted for until probably when i got to 18 and it was like okay I need some help like i need to understand this process i need to understand the difference between the two parties we haven't spoken about this for the first 18 years of my life (laughs) i have no idea how this works yet i could tell you how the house of congress works in the us (laughs) like i could tell you all about how the whole electoral college works and the history of american presidents and yet i have no idea how my own local system works and
0: we don't know what happened to harold Holt. to be clear
1: I think that the, the major difference. I mean, it's crazy that a sitting prime minister was allowed to go for a swim on his own in the first place. Like that would clearly I mean, never happen in America. Never. He'd be surrounded by secret service everywhere they go. So that—that's how casually it was looked on back then. If you go for a swim on your own, it's all good, and then he doesn't come back. Um, but but as a as a figure himself, I guess he maybe he was is just not that interesting. Uh, Australian politicians, as people, are nowhere near as enigmatic, as charismatic, as as particularly American presidents, I think charisma plays a big part in their ultimate election. You have to be, you know, a great public speaker. You have to connect with people. It's not just about being the smartest guy in the room or the one who gets the votes within the party. Because I think in Australian politics, it's more about who the party wants to push forward rather than who we're choosing. And America is, yeah, there's an element of that in America, but it's still about your connection to the people. And I don't think we have, I couldn't tell you a prime minister that, you know, really, really connected with a large group of people on a very personal level in an enigmatic way. Um, The closest was probably Kevin Rudd because he felt, you know, not as stiff, particularly coming from, you know, years and years of John Howard. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Rudd felt like a breath of fresh air, but even then, like compared to people like Barack Obama, the, Bill the, Clinton, even the la- George W. I wasn't even going to say Kevin Rudd because the
0: problem is that we kind of had the, you have the wool, you know, pulled from your eyes, so to speak, once he becomes in power yeah. and you see that he's a bit of an egomaniac. Um, exactly. Despite being exceptionally capable and very articulate and during his entire campaign, he was very much an antidote to, you know, mm. um, to to what the country had had in the conservative, conservative prime ministers then. um but I, I even think like Bob Hawke is the last prime minister in Australia yeah. and his own party yeah. usurped him. Like he felt like exactly. a guy that people could vote for forever. Like he's at a cricket yeah. game sculling beers with, with punters and yeah. people yeah. are like, and then we got rid of that guy. And I'm like, yeah. that's, the par- that's the party boy. You know, that's that's yeah. the guy for the country and his own party. But look, I think we've had a very de- uh, a digression-laden uh, introduction to you, uh, Doug. So, firstly, thank <laughs> yes. you for for being so um game right up right up front to talk about that. Um, we are now, for folks listening, past the hundred-minute mark. We're now, now at the hundred and fourth minute, so literally one hour forty-three minutes on your dial. We have just heard, or the the bridge of the minute, you hear the word "rat fucking," which is finally uh, a bit of a description. Um, hear about uh, political espionage and games to be played. Um, and look, it's an absolutely incredible scene. Um, we have the absolutely incredible Robert Walden who plays Donald Segretti. We have Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein. Let's hear from these guys having this chat and then starting to lead us into uh, a little bit of a, a visit from a old mate, Deep Throat, played by Hal Holbrook. Doug and I are going to watch the minute right now, minute 104, you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. That's
1: right. And you were just doing the same kind of stuff when you were out campaigning for President Nixon. <laughs> let me tell you something, we did a lot worse things in college. <laughs> Look, let me ask you something, Carl. What would you have done if you were just getting out of the army, been away from the real world for four years, didn't know what kind of law you wanted to practice? and one day you get a call from an old friend asking if you want to go to work for the President of the United States. Jeez. Chapin was the appointment secretary for
0: Nixon when he called.
1: Yeah, listen, if those sinister things really happen, I don't think Dwight knew anything about him. He just did what he was told. Told by who?
0: What's the topic for tonight? What's the topic for tonight? <laughs> uh, an unbelievable scene. So great. No. Uh, I can't get enough of Robert Walden's pregnant pause um, that concludes the dialogue with Bernstein. Again, we come to this beautiful dark garage. We see. <laughs> Redford in this green underworld silhouettes again it's stunning stuff and there's also a great thing and I don't know if it's a bugbear for you Doug but it pisses me off in contemporary movies where people get really shitty Photoshop photos of actors and they put them around their houses and you see them it just takes me out of the movie and I really love in this scene, they've clearly gotten you know, Robert Walden to give them his like college photo or yeah, high school photo yeah. or something. It's on the wall in his apartment. And there's just something about him talking now with a little bit more mileage, looking like he's seen a thing or two and then just seeing his young and hopeful face and talking to Bernstein yeah. about what happens when you get an offer from the President of the United States to work for him and maybe you don't realize where that's going to take you. A real cracker of a minute. I'm so glad that we get to talk about this one
1: it's i mean it taps into that real conflict of you know what do you do when when the president asks you to come work for him and then you suddenly realize it was potentially a mistake like that that, yeah. that he, he's not, not the man that you thought he was when you know so many people put the president on such a pedestal mm. because they put out that image of perfection and, you know, nobody's perfect, but Nixon takes it to another level. And <laughs> how do you speak up and what do you do?
0: Yeah. I, I, it's unfathomable also, because I think that he kind of contextualizes like how much in personal disarray would you be coming back from a war? like you've been yeah. away yeah. you've been dra- likely drafted he's already yeah. got a he's already got a degree he's fresh out of uni he's been drafted and he goes you then mm-hmm. come back to a world where no one wants you like around like you know v- yeah. vietnam soldiers in in the largest consciousness were you know thought of as you know uh, very, there's a lot of conflict. There was, you know, a lot of propaganda about them being war criminals and things like that. And obviously, there are examples of, mm. you know, really bad stuff that the war, if it was done. But, you know, the end grunt soldier ultimately, um, you know, not really accountable for the situations they were put in, but maybe the way they acted. And so he comes mm. home, and the entire military is thought of in the, probably the worst light that it ever has in the history of the country. And you then get a tap on the shoulder to be elevated out of that. And so he's always been such a deeply sympathetic figure for me um, in this movie. And I've loved this scene to death for his candor and for, for actually the you know, that great thing that movies do, which is make you really deeply empathize with someone who's done questionable shit. Um, because when you put yourself in your, that their situation, you think maybe, maybe I would have done the same thing.
1: Well, I think that's one of the biggest successes of the movie is that if you'd looked at the Watergate story from the outside, you, do, you feel like everybody in it is a villain. And, you know, to some degree, obviously they are, but they're all under the command of the biggest villain and they're just doing, they're basically just doing their job. Yes. And this movie gives us that insight into that, that conflict of, of they know what they're doing is wrong, but they're being told to do it, it's their job what are you going to do? You can't say no to the president and you certainly can't say no to his swarm of lackeys who are basically controlling everything for the president. So we, we do get, uh, you, you know, it's odd to feel sympathy for someone who is essentially a criminal. And, and that's, that's one of the, the, the uh, masterful things this movie is able to do, particularly for people who ha- only have a base level of the Watergate scandal or of the Nixon presidency and don't realize not everybody was necessarily evil in this situation.
0: Yeah. And I think all the people that start talking, um, they're very fascinating individuals, you know, anyone Mm -hmm. who wants to talk um, and keeps talking and the lengths that they want to go to, to sort of relieve themselves of the pressure or the burden of what they know is really fascinating. And, and I, I, I just, you know, it's just little details here. It's, uh, you know, Bernstein had basically lost this big fish off of his hook for just a, a brief yeah. moment in the previous minute. And he's now yeah. reeling him in again. And, and you know, you see the twinkle in his eye that there is an entire industry of these people who have made a game of this, this, what, what, From an outsider, you're like, are you allowed to send illegal correspondence on the letterheads (laughs) of your opponents to mess with their campaign? And he's like, oh, this is fun. We did it in college. And it's like, the stakes are much lower. But what's crazy is like, oh, that crazy game you played in college because you thought it was a joke. It will be funny. And it's a student election that has basically no bearing on anything (laughs) other than it's like totemic. You get to be like, hey, Mm. I was the president of my school or whatever. Who gives a shit? I mean, pretty foreign for Australian universities as well. And university students yeah, is like, yeah. who cares? Like, we're not electing anyone at uni. Um, we're barely playing hacky sack. And you know, <laughs> the the I think the that's what's kind of interesting to me about their dialogue. It's him reeling him in. It's him getting that. And I just love that right then in that moment. There's an opportunity to keep him on the hook, or it's to mm. ask the toughest question. And I love that both the scene and Bernstein and Segretti, he kind of has gotten everything out of him and he's given his context and he's ready and Bernstein and Hoffman's performance. It couldn't be cooler. Yeah. Kind of goes in for the kill. Like I love that mm. in that, like I'm going to ask mm. the big question and it's just going to sit there and that's how the scene's going to end. And it feels like a lifetime in that minute. Um, and it's just wonderful.
1: But it shows also, you know, Bernstein's obviously being a, a, a fabulous writer, but being able to connect with people because that's how he gets the information, that's how he gets sources, that's how he does his job. It's it's not just about the written word, It's it's where it's coming from. And you're not going to get that if you're not able – I don't want to say play people because that sounds sort of malicious – but understand how to get that information out of them, not just bully them, not push them up against a wall and demand it, but to slowly reel them in to, to play to that person's strengths, to tell them what they want to hear and get what you want out of them without seeming like giving that impression to the person to know that they're almost being played in that way. It's really funny. Um, a couple, uh, now a couple of episodes
0: um, with a really terrific, uh, let's call him a retired film critic uh, and great and filmmaker and great podcaster himself, Sam Fragoso was on the show and Sam and I were talking about, he was talking about, you know, the central theme or the central thesis of the movie happens when Bernstein and Woodward are standing at Hugh Sloan's door and Debbie Sloan played by Meredith Baxter is there and they're having a dialogue with her trying to talk their way into the door. And, he said yeah. the, the central thesis of the movie in his mind was, and I and, and and I think it's a great reading of the entire exercise, you know, and a great interesting insight into his mind as a filmmaker too, is you've got these two guys trying to say that the best thing for these people is to talk to them. And yeah. then there's this yeah. bit of yeah. naked, uh, I, I like to call it like naked candor where Debbie Sloan goes, no, it isn't. And yeah. and Woodward <laughs> <Redford's laughs> goes, no, 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 it isn't. And (laughs) I I just love that in the context of this moment, because that's what it is. It's like you, you very much get that in that pregnant pause, there is this moment, this tipping point, and we're about to see it in a number of scenes that come up of, Mm. I have to tell you information that is going to incriminate me. And there's no more hiding. It's going to, it doesn't, it might, it might not impact me as much as other people, but most Mm. certainly it will, there will be an impact. And so I think that that's a real burden for journalists and for subjects of journalism because it's like yeah. you kind of have to get you, have, you kind of have to clear your name and not yeah yeah I that kind of sounds stupid to say but it's like it's like two it's mm. it's always a two-hander it's like you yes mm. and no and does that make sense and and you know is it what's best for you probably never
1: yeah I think because, you know, to, to lie and and cheat and steal and, and all of these crimes that they did in the first place, you had to be comfortable with that on some level. And yes. now you're asking that person to admit what they did was wrong, give you the information, potentially incriminate themselves, potentially lead to jail time. They, I mean, they didn't know what was going to happen no. once all this information came out. And and. For a journalist to get that out of someone, there's nothing you can offer them. You can't. It's not like talking to the FBI or the police of offering a plea deal where they're going to give the information and not get in trouble. There, there was none of that on the other side of the story coming out. So the ability of both Woodward and Bernstein to get that um, uh, amount of people to, to do that, <laughs> in, in the greater context of the greater good, just showed how they were able to convince people and I think that's what the broader movie does is it really pays tribute to what they were able to do, which so many people couldn't. You know, so many amazing writers you know, could, could get to that point but still need that extra key of the witnesses that, that wouldn't be able to do it because they wouldn't know how to talk to people and convince them to blow up the presidency, to blow up the White House. Like That's a huge responsibility for anybody, let alone numerous people that they got to
0: talk. Yeah, and and I think you you put it great to the great point of like. Also, these are layers of tactics. You know, when they were strewn out on Bernstein's four floor, you know, that led into this scene when they were talking about Segretti before we were introduced to him. They're sort of going, "The Segretti and Co. are not responsible for the break in. No, they're not responsible mm. for breaking. They're going to be. They're funded by the same people who are funding, but as different." you know, their own individual agents, they're out playing one level of the game. And it's like this 3d chess game where, you know, they're one part of it. And even Segretti himself is having these flooding things in his mind. You imagine that moment of like, Oh my, Mm -hmm. like
1: Mm -hmm. all the
0: things that I was doing was just one part of this greater thing. And so, yeah. And I, I think that that, that indecision and that fact that they were just a part of it. And the fact that they were doing their job, obviously saved some of the folks who, ultimately we indicted and were you know given you yeah. know, more lenient sentences for kind of just like the more candid people were the more lenient their sentences were because ultimately yeah. that's what the the cam um uh the 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 senate uh hearings were all about you know with, with yeah. you know trying to uncover um who was really complicit in all of this um but yeah it's really interesting to me it's like that that when you're talking about it and all these things the connecting point is the question, which is who gave the orders? Because yeah. as all these people who say they work so independently, the orders come back to a very small few number of yeah, people yeah. who then receive <laughs> exactly. the orders from the president of the United States. And it's exactly. like, oh, we all were interconnected. This was a big game. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, this is a great scene because it it, it punctuates that, that an entire sequence of the movie. Um, you know, I've had some great, Yes, uh, sorry, sorry, I had some great correspondence from some patrons on the show who um, wanted me to shout out, and I'll shout out to Greg Christie, who's been an amazing follower. He says, um, I want you, I was want, you know, he, his reading of the Segretti um, uh, flying across America stuff is about, uh, is sort of in direct correspondence with the Library of Congress scene, you know, where they go through the cards mm-hmm. and they get nothing, but then they go through mm-hmm. the papers and they get something. Um, yeah. And I think that's a good reading, um, uh, you know, not something that was as apparent to me, but. It, it's kind of different the music does come in so it's sort of similar similar different but yeah i just think uh it's it's a it's a really incredible it's a really incredible scene it's always very thoughtful and i don't know about you doug but like they don't make people with faces like robert walden anymore like his face (laughs) is so good like it's just yeah yeah. it's a real guy and and yeah you know, they did it. um, Ned Beatty's in this movie and like Ned Beatty's another guy like you think of. I I recently watched Mikey and Nikki, um, which is uh, uh, directed by Elaine May. It's got Peter Falk. It's got John Cassavetes. um, Also has Ned Beatty. And that movie is like the most 70s face movie I can ever remember. It's like real people, real faces, real guys, real women, real like struggling friendships, but just like
1: people who look real and sweaty and in their element and amazing. And I think that that's one thing I love about all the president's men is they didn't fill those supporting roles with a bunch of big stars. They no. really went for real looking people. You know, they had their stars in, in Hoffman and Redford, like they they knew they were leading the movie. Let's really cast some really great people to literally maybe do one scene, two scenes, but completely still focus in that moment because they are the best damn person for that role, <laughs> regardless of what they look like, regardless if they even resemble the real person, because yeah. most of these people didn't. No. Um, but but they those scenes are the ones that stick with you because you know, I even think someone like Jason Robards isn't in it an awful lot and still no. walked away with an Oscar nomination because <laughs> he just left an impression. Like that was his ability to just steal every moment he had in that movie. And I think everybody kind of realized like holy shit, like this is my chance to work in a, a Redford and Hoffman movie. <laughs> I'm going to give it my all. And everything in this scene is, it's just etched on his face. Like he's such a, a great emotional performer where you can see, you can almost see his mind working, like the, the realisation that, holy shit, like Richard Nixon is a massive crook and I'm involved. And now I'm being asked to snitch on him. Like there's so much processing going on. As you said, with the pause, it's like, He's just taking it all in. And he does such a fabulous job in this scene. Because There's a, it was his moment. He, his, he took it. It's his moment. He, and I like
0: different acting styles. It's like he's an actor who feels like who gets how important teeth are. And I yeah. like like I know that sounds so stupid, but like no, I think I, we can yeah, like you mean. know, it's like you, so many people, especially people who are like are used to if you've ever interacted in a corporate environment with different people there are people who sort of have this like toothy smiley forced mm, mm. about them. And it almost feels like if you've been around it for too long, you can find yourself doing it And yeah. because it's kind of, it's, it's something that it, 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 it makes an impression, but it's this mm. sort of forced smiley thing. And he has that when he's kind of lying to himself in these moments, yeah. which is so wonderful. Yeah. And then he breaks through and you see a more authentic smile and i i think any actor who um and so many people do it in this movie so this is just like the robert walden hour of this show but it's like (laughs) um there are so many people who do such wonderful things in this movie but i think a real credit to an actor who can be in character be in a role and then portray something that's inauthentic to that character and then authentic to that character in the same scene it's really cool yeah um and we haven't in even ta- in one minute, and we haven't even talked <laughs> about the final bits, which is that I love transition minutes where it feels like there is a key conclusion moment in the minute, and then we get into something else. And you know, you get a great transition moment here because it's like cutting from, you know, the innards of this apartment, <laughs> um, you know, just you know, looks like a you know upper upper middle class apartment by the water. A guy has been in politics, you know, so. I guess he's entitled to live in somewhere, a nice place by the water. Mm. And then we finally come back to Deep Throat for our <laughs> second of three, second of three visits with him on screen. Hal Holbrook, not really much talking from Redford whatsoever in this minute. Cause we move on to the next minute to, to yes. get to some more underground rat fucking. Um, but <laughs> in this moment, there's just this, unbelievable silhouette shot. It feels like it could be a yeah. shot of the movie. Yeah. And then Hal Holbrook sort of going, What is it for today? And um it's just a really it's a really magic little transition. It's a magic introduction and it's like, uh yeah. I I, I also love this as a moment as like a great, you know, what's what what's the topic for today?
1: It feels like I should that's how I should introduce every guest. What's the topic for yeah. today? <laughs> this I mean this was one of those movies I when I first watched it while studying it was I was you know focusing on the screenplay and the acting and that that's kind of how I'd always watch movies like those are the two things that stand out and then I think studying film teaches you to look for other things and that's the cinematography it's the lighting it's you know every other element that comes into it that sometimes you don't notice and sometimes you do and then you know, I I do remember our lecture was kind of like, watch this a second time and really focus on the visuals and particularly the, the car park scenes because they are some of the most like simple, but, but really, really beautiful. And, and as you say, like that silhouette moment is, is, is very typical of that. And that's not something I had necessarily appreciated in a first watch and, that's something you would encourage people to go back and watch again because you're not necessarily noticing those things. It's a dark car park. Okay. But it has been structured in a very, very specific way.
0: That's the thing that you relish. You know, if you ever, if you ever watch a movie once and you love it and it inspires you back for multiple reviewings or, you know, or you find yourself not being able to turn it off when you stumble upon it on streaming services or on channels, or if you've got a, you know, a subscription to a cable service or whatever. And so, even for me in this project, it's 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 so fascinating to that so many people go, oh, look at all the preparation and all the authenticity and even discovering new things that are even more authentic. Like you know, they shot the scene of at Judith Hoback Miller's house where the bookkeeper yeah. was, and those sorts yeah. of things. But in this underground car park, it is just so stunning to have this and this feeling. So the feeling is you've been relishing and looking forward to another moment because you're, you know, you know that this is an important figure, but Mm. it always comes with this sort of ominous sense that, especially now leading up to the stakes of this movie growing, it's like, you can really start to marvel at the craft of like, wow, you know, in all these other scenes that are brightly lit and colorful and look at this knitted sweater that I might want to own. The next scene is, I'm in a, an underground car park. Yeah. It looks, yeah. it looks, it looks green. My face looks off colored mm. and weird. And, mm. um, and, and, and then you get down to these characters who are just like shrouded in shadows and it's a shadow play. And it's just, I mean, the lighting of Willis, lighting just these you know just 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 irises just just irises and then uh, Mm. uh, uh, not lighting other things and then bathing you know using all natural light
1: it's just really special i think every sense of dread in this movie comes from those car park scenes yeah without them you know obviously it's based on fact that's where they really met but they've chosen to frame it and light it and film it in a very specific way to add to that that rising sense of tension that are they being followed? Is someone onto them? You know, are they about to be murdered? You just don't know. <laughs> if, you, if you knew nothing of the story, you could be like, they're not going to get away with this. You know, someone's going to catch on. Someone's going to find out what they're doing. It's going to get shut down. Someone's going to turn up in a car park. Yes. And those scenes are where all of that comes from. The, the tension of what they were attempting to do and the the, the threat of what they were under is, is all contained in those moments that 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 you know they really put their their lives on the line to get this story, and I don't think we see that these days no it's and it's you know there it's
0: at a moment um not too dissimilar from the moment we're in now where journalism wasn't really held up to the regard that it had once been. There was a more hostile True. political environment against journalists that didn't back them. they didn't necessarily have mm-hmm. a full um uh murdoch-backed propaganda um machine <laughs> behind it um but they, no. cer- th- but they certainly had um a hostility towards the media who who they perceived to you know have um have political allegiances that weren't of their own and you know that and, that, and yeah. that's that's without saying directly you know um that's without necessarily calling all of their reporting you know politically slanted away from the Nixon Mm -hmm. administration but particularly Mm -hmm. this story the fact that they held on and they lingered with it and you know ultimately it was the post and then uh, um, and then others um, uh, coming back uh, I feel like I feel like it's yeah it's 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 definitely uh, the I think we're not going to find out about the journalists who truly put their lives on the line until
1: no.
0: Um, other than the people who were just walking the streets during the Black Lives Matter protests, who literally put their lives yeah. on the line because the <laughs> yes, police were yeah, shooting the at the journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, it, wasn't, mm-hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't like secret back dealings, 11 months and 12 mm-hmm. months of telling a story. It was just like we were just walking the street that day and Trump wanted the <laughs> plots cleared so they had their lives. Exactly.
1: Behind. But I think like the biggest thing that they were up against was that Richard Nixon was a wildly popular president at the time. Oh, yeah. You know he. You know in his re-election. He won forty-nine out of fifty states. He had one of the biggest landslides in in American history. <laughs> wait, he wait. Was just that repeat that. Repeat yeah, forty-nine out of fifty. Yeah, yep. oh I think God. he lost. I think it was Massachusetts or Minnesota. One of the M's. That was the only state he didn't carry <laughs> in his re-election. It was a slaughter because that's how popular he was. That that's why the whole Watergate thing doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he didn't necessarily need to do it, but he was so uh, fearful of losing. He was so desperate to hold on to power uh, and he was so uh, desperate to be loved and liked, you know, which is sort of similar to Trump in a lot of ways that he would go to any means to get there. But in reality, he didn't need to do any of it. He was going to win the election. You know, he had achieved a lot in his first four years. He got America out of Vietnam. Um, I think he did some desegregation work in the South. He was a great diplomat to China. He was actually a really good president. And the problem is now his entire presidency is defined by this one moment. The, the first introduction I had to Richard Nixon was he's a crook. Like yeah. that's that's synonymous with his legacy, unfortunately, when in reality, his actual presidency was full of amazing achievements. And his reelection was one of the biggest landslides in history. So for for them to tackle such a popular president, regardless of what he had done wrong, it was an enormous challenge. Uh, And you could see that's why people weren't willing to talk about him, because it's just like, but he is the president and everyone loves him. I think his approval rating was something in the, the, the high 60s, 68, 69, something like that, which is more than we've seen for any president in my lifetime, certainly. Yeah, you get very, very divisive figures that usually hover around that fifty percent, but he was well over that, and yet he was doing some crazy, crazy things that didn't need to be done.
0: I think Nixon teaches a great lesson, though, of um, the lack of logic, or I guess just the yeah. total irrationality <laughs> yeah, of yeah. of of power. Power, um, mm. and and it's it's like the. Uh, the famine mentality once you have, once you've got like this unbelievable, unfathomable power, the famine mentality that any of it is going to be called into question leads to Mm. utter irrationality. And so when people are like, well, they're so powerful or so rich or so influential, why would they do X? And it's like, that ultimately makes you do weird shit. Like to be, you know, like, um, you know, for for all um for all the criticism that he's currently getting, I do uh, I have listened to and enjoyed much of Joe Rogan's podcast for many years. And one time I remember him talking, or maybe he said it many times, but it was just like when you're talking about a representative government and you have to ride on horseback between towns, it makes a lot of sense for how the current American administration is set up. When you yeah. have the yeah. internet, it does mm. not make any sense. Like for example, you know, where yeah. the, the, the the big one, and you would know this about, you know, just the, um, uh, the, the sort of the political gerrymandering, if you like, of the different senators and what, you know, foot, mm. what, what the population footprints that are under each of those representatives. It's like, mm. Hey, you guys have in say California or say New York city, you guys have got like 20 million people, 15 million people, 20 million people. or So that's like, 10% of the population in two cities, they have as many senators as people who, you know, have like 800,000 people total Correct. who live in that state. Yeah. And so yeah. it's, it just seems kind of ludicrous um, in, in those ways that it hasn't evolved ever with population or cities or whatever those things. But that that's, it, it just, especially now, you know, we're in 2020, it's a pandemic, you see these companies and people make really kind of rash decisions with power and you're like what are these people doing but that's you know nixon is a great figure in that no matter what you think about him um his very existence and his life and his ultimate downfall from political life is like a case study and this film and this story is like a case study of like power corruption and yeah those messy things that happen it's 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 always a a complete fascination to me and probably endlessly discussable on this show but also like outside of the show it's something I ponder as well going like it's it's the thing that never makes sense that only in this movie they address mere minutes ago which is like why when you are winning it, it, it is it is almost it's almost like being a, the only way to describe it is like being a boxer like Mike Tyson fighting me, mm. and Mike Tyson is beating me up. And then in the 11th round, I wouldn't last 11 rounds, halfway through <laughs> the first round, when I'm dying on the floor and I like yes. can't get up anymore, he gets his friend to come in the ring and shoot me. Like that's basically yeah, yeah. Watergate. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, yeah, exactly, you don't need to shoot him or shoot me, rather. I'm dead. Like it's over. Like yep. it's it just wait yep. two more seconds for the ref to count him out. And so that's the. The, the whole thing that I just endlessly go like, why? And it's like, well, it has to be that famine mentality of I'm going to lose one Skerrick of power or influence in this moment. I have to do anything, even if it's the irrational anything, to guarantee that it is not going to stop.
1: And I think that that's why we've seen Nixon appear in several films, you know, several TV shows. There's you know, endless books written about him. He is someone that, you know, for people who don't really know presidents you ask them to name another president besides the current president. And, and he would likely be one of them. He yes. he has transcended pop culture in a way because he is such a fascinating figure of contradictions, of confusions, of shit that just doesn't make sense about his presidency. You know, he, he would record every conversation he had because he was that paranoid that, and then, and then some of those tapes. That sounds like, that sounds like, so, sounds like me, Doug. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the age of living now where it's like, I'm not going to call you. I'm going to put something in email because I need it on record. Like I can understand it to a certain degree, but he was just terribly, terribly paranoid despite being one of the most popular presidents in modern history. It still wasn't enough. And it and you're right. It really, it is the personification of absolute power corrupting. Absolutely. Yes. And, it, and it just completely fucked with his mind to the point where he would do something like Watergate, which just in retrospect, it just seems so illogical and so stupid and, and gave him absolutely nothing and ended up killing his presidency. It's, it's such a a juxtaposition. It's such a, a, a ludicrous thing for a president to do.
0: Yeah. And you know, we, we, you've mentioned it a couple of times as I have, it's like, I mean, Trump's got Watergate's like,
1: every week every week every week,
0: week. <laughs> every
1: week. And that's just, that's the strange thing uh, because knowing this story knowing this movie every time i hear kind of one of these scandals you hear people say oh this is going to be his watergate and then a few days later we move on to the next watergate and the next one whereas i mean it, it shows the the changing attitude of the republican party is that When all of this came out about Nixon, they all turned their back on him. He was immediately, it was either resign or we will impeach and we'll remove you. Whereas with Trump, it was like he was actually impeached and they still stood behind him. They still allowed him to stay. Nothing happened. No consequences. Yet he has done so much worse in so many ways than, you know, breaking into an office building, which at the end of the day, it was not that bad. But it was the the lies and the corruption around it. I get it. But...
0: I almost, I know this is going to sound weird. So just go with me. I almost wanted <laughs> to have someone break into the Democrats. Yes. <laughs> let's give it a crack. Let's run it yes. back. Let's see yes. what happens.
1: You never know. Yeah,
0: Because yeah. like with a drone, one thing. with a drone, you can do way worse than these guys were ever going to do <laughs> with a bug. Like, let's see if he just has a crack. Just break in somewhere, Trump. Do I something. Know. Because for me, it's like, grab them by the pussy, tell people to do illegal things. And then the only reason that they don't is because they have a care about their country and you're still there. Like get impeached, you know, have scandals with Russia, have scandals with money, like go golfing for like more days in your presidency than actual days being the president. It's just like, like know about the pandemic and then not tell anyone about it. And just, it's like the list goes on. It's like, I should just
1: break into a hotel room. Maybe (laughs) Let's just see (laughs) if that does it. I, every time it happens, I'm like, oh, okay, this is it. We're in for, we're in for the Watergate moment. No, Stormy Daniels. I oh, know we move on from that. Oh, you know, his pandemic response. No, we move on from that. Like it, it it's such a different time. And the think- tax
0: right now, as we're talking, it's the tax. Yeah. That he pays yeah. $750 in tax. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then for, for folks internationally, it's like one of our billionaires, not one that currently runs your media, um, but uh, another one, Kerry Packer in Australia was famously um, outed through freedom of information and journalism that he like paid like one dollar of tax mm, as mm. a billionaire in this country Um, because everything went through his businesses and you know, there was a suitable amount of outrage, but he was also a bit of a cult of personality kind of guy. So he kind yeah. of definitely got away yeah. with it. Um, and you know, these old school business guys, that's how they live their life. Like, you know,
1: but, but I mean, Kerry Packer wasn't leading our country. You know? no, <laughs> like he was just a oh, business. Thankfully, no. I'm sure he would have liked it. <laughs> Doug,
0: you know, I might have to do the old Michael Corleone line from The Godfather Part 1. Who's being naive <laughs> now, Doug? Wow. Yeah. Like, like well, Kerry Packer yeah. Was Let, let's say Basically. Get, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was basic he ran yeah. cricket and and n r l football yeah. and he basically ran in the in the eighties and nineties he basically ran our country you know like he would have had, um <laughs> he, he definitely had some strong political influences at the time that's true um, but that's true. but yeah you know i i mean this is where it's like you know even if uh, even if you just tax the rich as much as you and i get taxed i'm i'm good yeah. with that I'm just happy with that. That's the yeah. bracket, not even 50%, just whatever I get taxed. Cause I feel like yeah. I'm paying out the ass every year. I look exactly. at my tax return. I'm like, you son of a bitch. Like, Hey, how much yeah. do I have to pay? And I'm like the little guy by, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And it's like, you know, and they're like Jeff Bezos paid no tax. And you're like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I'd love how to much- pay 700, 750 sounds great. That's, 750 sounds good. Yeah. You guys I'm pay what I, You guys pay 30%. <laughs> We'll pay seven fifty from here on out, and that that
1: we'll call it quits. Oh my goodness, Doug! Man, Mads- I can't imagine. Just so I just one more thing. I just can't imagine what the journalists who would watch a film like this, see the result of something that, that Woodward Wood and Bernstein and done, and then see them release similar sort of stories, and it go nowhere. So that they would put in similar types of effort, that they would put out a story of the same magnitude. And see it basically become, you know, the bottom of the birdcage the next day because we move on. And th- this film would stand as a tribute to what, you know, journalism used to be able to do—the the the effect it could actually have.
0: Yeah, look, it's it's. I think I think those kind of journalists just have to do what everyone's doing right now in 2020. And and you and I, um, you more than me, uh, you know, in the film journalism game broadly and and doing different things. Um, it's like the entire the entire world, the entire paradigm has shifted. Like there's 20, mm. there's all years before. And then there's 2020, 2020. and, and, yeah. and, and the 2020 of it all is, I, 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 I think it's, um, and, and Watergate is very much like this. It is there. Watergate was a stream. It was not just a a couple of signposts. It was a stream mm. of stories and a stream of revelations and growing revelations and increased pressures. And also then, the great thing that we haven't so much talked about because it it never actually eventuates in the film, but it's like, it, 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 or, or it only does in tangential ways, which is like, you know, the FBI go back and say, they're going to investigate something because we didn't realize that John Mitchell was in charge of the X, Y, Z, but it's the stream and the constant. Push of these stories. It's then the garnering of the public interest. It's the media chorus. It's then moving law and order institutions like the police or like you know um uh, intelligence agencies to investigate things it's like well mm. this was uncovered how do we do this and and so i i think those journalists who are out there just need to like keep pushing their stream of stories and keep trying yeah. to keep tying them together and keep talking about it because at the end the collective weight may be that someone is not elected but i, I think that that's the thing that we You know, there are so many thankless, you know, I imagine, you know, I always talk about fighters because I'm a big fight fan. It's like there are so many thankless and countless hours that a fighter will get up in the morning and run for an hour on the road. They call it their road Mm. work and they just do these thankless hours. And it's not for that day. It's for the championship that they fight for 10 years later. And it's like, Mm. if you ran every single day and you ran 10 kilometers and you ran, you know, whatever it is, you know, you're running thousands and thousands of kilometers and you're running for hours and hours and hours and hundreds of hours, maybe even thousands of hours. And it's like, at the end of that, you just hope that you've made an impact. Yeah. Yeah. And and in 2020, I think the only thing that these guys can take solace in is that they're still making an impact. They still have work to do, you know, freshen up, get some rest, 15 minutes and get your asses back in gear. You know, <laughs> Like that's just, that's, that's the, all those folks who might be disheartened. I would just say, yeah, freshen up 15 minutes and get your asses back in gear. Cause we need you. We need you to keep writing. We need you to keep finding this shit. Um, and, and then hopefully, you know, hopefully one of these will stick. And if it doesn't stick,
1: hopefully it doesn't get reelected. If it does, I don't yeah. know what the hell
0: we're going to do, Doug. I don't, I had no, no I don't know. No, no
1: I, I don't I don't want to even consider it, but yeah, I, I think that there's a the possibility that there were writers that tried to do stories about other presidents and got nowhere. So for, for all these people that are getting nowhere, it's like, that's happened before, but then Woodward and Bernstein are the, you know, the, the gold standard of what can happen when it does work. And maybe that can still happen these days. We just have to keep hoping. Yeah.
0: Look, it's, di- it's a different time, but paradigms are shifting all over. And so, yeah. Um, you know, there's – I think the time is now to just keep doing it. you got to keep doing the damn thing because the world's changing and the landscape's changing and, you know, the old guard is also going to start changing too because, you know, I mean, short of Futurama coming true and heads being able to live (laughs) in jars, I think Rupert Murdoch and his empire will eventually disband, you know, and that's going to change the landscape. And, you know, and and hopefully the American population – doesn't have them, <laughs> doesn't turn into a complete dictatorship <laughs> just sometime soon. Cause they kind of have all the nukes and, um, that would not be fortunate for anyone, but, um, yeah, I, it's, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. You just got to keep, keep fighting the good fire. But look, it's mm. been a real pleasure talking to you about it, Doug. It's awesome. No, and, thank you. And, uh, I've really appreciated you where can people best find your stuff?
1: Uh, the best place is probably my website, The Jam Report, which is thejamreport.com. And then with award season, I mean it's going to be a very strange award season because it's going for a lot longer. The Oscars very. are in April, you know, eligibility's changed. It's it's going to be a wild one. Um, so I'll be doing award season coverage over at Filmotomy.com, where I'll be the awards editor. So predictions, you know, 4 your considerations, all that kind of stuff to come.
0: Huge thank you to Mr. Doug Jamison for being a part of the show. If you want to find Doug, you just go to at It's Doug Jam on Twitter. Um, you can also go to The Jam Report, which is thejamreport.com. And uh, basically, if you go to those two places, you're going to find everything that he's doing. Um, I like Doug a lot. um I've been uh, I've been interacting with him quite a bit on Twitter. That's where I found him, and uh, yeah, he's one of the he's one of the good ones. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Um again, a really condensed week here on all the president's minutes. Um, uh, so thank you for uh, just weathering the storm of a stack of different episodes all dropping all at once, including a new episode in our series, um, uh, a special limited series, three hands. I've been Blake Howard, One Blake Minute on Twitter and Instagram at ATPM Pod. You can find us on Twitter. OneHeatMinute.com is our website. Mail at OneHeatMinute.com is where you can email us. And finally, if you've got a little bit of extra scratch, Patreon forward slash OneHeatMinute. And if you don't, share, retweet, review, text this to someone for God's sake. We love your support. Thanks so much for listening. Another banger on its way.